and welcome to American Catholic History brought to you by the support of listeners like you. If you value this content, please become a supporter at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash support. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Once again, a word of thanks to our supporters. Thank you to everyone who has supported our work. Yes, thank you sincerely. If you've enjoyed these episodes, if you've learned something, if you've been inspired or edified, please consider joining our supporters. You can learn about our support tiers at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash support. The lowest is just $5 each month. But for more each month, you'll get extra perks. Also, thank you for your very kind reviews and five-star ratings. Like the latest review we received, Father Mark commented, Thank you for letting people know our rich Catholic history. And Kenny Liz, who wrote, So much we don't know about how Catholics helped shape our country. Thanks for great stories. Keep the reviews coming and the five-star ratings. They help others find us. So, that said... On with the show. Today we're talking about a number of things pertaining to desegregation in Florida, racism, anti-Catholicism, and the dramatic arrest of three sisters of St. Joseph in 1916. Yeah, this episode started out with looking into why those three sisters were arrested, but so many different threads kind of came together that this became somewhat of a survey episode. We're going to talk about anti-Catholics and racists in the Florida state government, and also some heroic sisters, bishops, and even some Protestants. And it all comes together as a story of how Catholics and a number of non-Catholics defending the dignity of all persons helped to end segregation. So let's set it up. We're talking about Florida and we're starting in the second half of the 19th century. Yes, after the Civil War. The 13th and the 14th Amendments have ended slavery and given citizenship to all former slaves. But the struggle continued to ensure equal protection under the law and to end all efforts to make life just miserable for blacks through unjust laws like Jim Crow. Some organizations did lots to help improve the quality of life and opportunity for blacks. Chief among these organizations was the American Missionary Association and the Catholic Church. The American Missionary Association, or the AMA, had been an active abolitionist group for a while. It was made up of Protestants, mostly Presbyterians, and in the later portion of the 19th century, they opened schools for the children and grandchildren of freed slaves. One of these schools, the Orange Park Normal and Industrial School, opened in 1891 just south of Jacksonville. Orange Park offered a truly great education, and since it was the only school of quality nearby, white families eventually began to enroll their children also. This made it the only integrated school in the entire state at the time. But the AMA wasn't the only organization educating black students. Beginning back in 1867, real soon after the Civil War ended, the Catholic Church erected many schools for black students in various parts of Florida, from Key West up to St. Augustine and in points more west. These schools were the work of the Sisters of St. Joseph. The Sisters of St. Joseph is a French order founded in Le Puy and Ville in 1650 with a charism to teach the poor and underprivileged. Well, black children in the American South in the 1860s certainly fit that bill. So when they were asked to cross the Atlantic, they readily did so. Yeah, a quick history of the organization of the church at this time. Florida had become a state in 1845. The territory was initially divided between the Diocese of Savannah, which had the peninsula and the northern and the northern Florida area up to the Apalachicola River, and the Diocese of Mobile, which had the western portion in the Panhandle. 
1857, the Savannah portion became an apostolic vicariate, which is basically the last step before becoming a diocese in its own right. The man appointed vicar apostolic was Augustin Vero. He set about immediately assessing the needs of his flock, and after the Civil War, those changed dramatically. Right. Suddenly, he had thousands of freed slaves to evangelize and care for. Providentially, Vero was a native of Le Puya Valais, so he was very familiar with the Sisters of St. Joseph. On a visit to his hometown in 1866, he requested sisters be sent to establish schools. The order accepted his request and sent eight young, energetic sisters that year. Within a few years, they had multiple schools for the black children up and running. In 1898, they built St. Benedict the Moor School in St. Augustine with the financial aid of a nun from Philadelphia, the wealthy heiress Catherine Drexel. Incidentally, Catherine Drexel is one of the very few U.S. Catholic saints that we haven't yet done an episode on. Maybe soon, but... We're spacing out those canonized saints over, you know, all these episodes so we can tell you other stories, too. I I mean, yeah, there are so many great stories. We don't need to jump on the saints too quickly. Right. There really are. Like this one. Yeah. And these sisters, along with Catherine Drexel, are among the great stories. They were doing great work in Florida while she was doing great work in Philadelphia and, well, well, really all over the U.S. Yeah. So all was going well for the Sisters of St. Joseph in Florida. I mean, as well as could be expected. Plenty of Floridians did not think that blacks should get an education, and they certainly didn't think whites and blacks should be in the same classroom. Among those who held this view was a prominent educator and politician named William Sheets. Sheets held the post of superintendent of public instruction for the entire state of Florida for more than 20 years between 1893 and his death in 1922. He is considered the father of public education in Florida. He established the public school system and did not like private schools, especially not ones that he could not directly control. Hmm. A public education official that hates private schools. Weird. We've never heard that before. Yeah. The more things change, as they say, the more they stay the same, right? Sheets turned his animus into government action. In 1894, he pushed through a bill that forbade black and white students to be in the same classroom. The bill was aimed squarely at the Orange Park School because he learned that it had become integrated. Orange Park resisted, and that law was eventually declared unconstitutional, but Orange Park had been damaged and crippled from the harassment and negative publicity. But Orange Park didn't close. Yet. They kept offering a high-quality education to all students, black and white. But Sheets wasn't done trying to end them, and he found another target for his legal attacks. He learned that the Catholics had these white sisters teaching in black schools, and that just could not stand. Yeah, so in 1913, he pushed a bill that would prohibit white teachers from teaching in black schools and vice versa. The This bill, titled An Act Prohibiting White Persons from Teaching Negroes in Negro Schools, actually passed unanimously through both houses of the Florida legislature. Not one state representative nor state senator voted against it. And this bill became law on June 7, 1913. And that was the end of the road for the Orange Park School. Yeah, the leaders there just didn't have enough fight left to resist this new assault. Orange Park Normal and Industrial School closed that year. But Sheets didn't have the same success when he took on the Sisters of St. Joseph and the Bishops of St. Augustine. No. 
The Bishop of St. Augustine, when the law took effect, was William John Kenny. He knew the law was aimed squarely at his schools for black students run by the Sisters of St. Joseph. The sisters, all white, were excellent teachers doing great work. Bishop Kenny firmly supported their work and opposed this law. He consulted legal counsel. He was advised that the law would likely be declared unconstitutional if challenged. So he told the sisters to keep on doing what they were doing. He and they were okay with violating an unjust law and taking it to court. The orders to cease and desist came, and they were ignored. But then a wrinkle. Bishop Kenny died suddenly at 60 years old in October of 1913. Naturally, there would be some question about whether his successor would take the same stand. But the concerns were quickly put to bed. The next Bishop of St. Augustine was a remarkable man, Michael Joseph Curley. Curley, a native of Ireland, had desired to be a missionary in Fiji, but during his studies in Ireland, Bishop John Moore, the Irish-born second Bishop of St. Augustine, visited and convinced Curley to come to St. Augustine instead. Curley completed his studies in Ireland and then in Rome before he was ordained a priest in the Basilica of St. John Lateran in March of 1904. He crossed the pond and served as a priest of St. Augustine for 10 years, including as diocesan chancellor and as Bishop Kenny's secretary. So he was a natural fit to succeed Kenny and take up the cause. Even though he was only 34 years old at the time of his consecration as bishop. Yeah, just 34. Bishop of nearly the entire state of Florida and stepping into this very charged atmosphere. But Bishop Curley didn't flinch. Naturally, he was well acquainted with the situation. He affirmed his predecessor's decision and supported the sisters continuing to teach. He declared he was ready to press the matter all the way to the Supreme Court. The state of affairs lasted until 1916. In May of 1916, the governor of Florida, Park Trammell, finally got fed up and he signed an order to shut down St. Benedict the Moore School. So the local sheriff went to the school in April 1916 and arrested the three sisters of St. Joseph who were teaching in violation of the law. Bishop Curley protested strongly and took the matter to court. The matter naturally drew national attention. And on May 20th, 1916, Judge George Cooper Gibbs struck down the law. Ironically, Gibbs had been appointed to his post on the 4th Judicial Circuit Court of Florida earlier that year by Governor Trammell. In his opinion, Gibbs said that the law violated the Florida State Constitution as well as the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. He also wrote that the law unjustly impinged on a private citizen's right to sell their services to anyone whom they chose. He likened the right of white teachers to teach black students to the right of white doctors, lawyers, and merchants to sell their goods and services to black customers. Now, he also recognized a distinction between private and public schools, and he was careful to limit his ruling to private schools. So Florida public schools remained legally segregated until the late 1960s. But as of May 20th, 1916, the state of Florida could not require private schools to be segregated in any way. So the sisters were released and returned to the classroom. And once again, Catholic institutions were instrumental in ending segregation. And that's more or less the end of the story as far as the sisters are concerned. But there was a lot more going on in the Florida government at the time, and Bishop Curley continued to lead the fight against it. Yeah, this part of the episode is more or less a, but wait, there's more. (laughs) Right. Well, in this case, there was. The whole situation in Florida during this time was really a struggle against anti-Catholic 
racist figures. Yes, and chief among them was the man who won the election for governor of Florida that year. 1916 was, of course, an election year, and as we said, the law about white teachers teaching in a black school passed the Florida legislature unanimously. Everyone knew full well that this was aimed at Catholic schools and a few Protestant ones, but mostly the Catholic schools. So anti-black and anti-Catholic sentiment both held significant sway in state politics. An insurance salesman, teacher, preacher, and attorney named Sidney Johnston Katz ran for governor that year. He leaned heavily into the anti-Catholic thing. He even claimed that Catholics were trying to assassinate him during his campaign. And later, he claimed that the Benedictine monks at St. Leo Abbey outside Tampa were hoarding weapons under the church. This is this is such a tired trope that seems to be a favorite of anti-Catholics during the time. We saw this charge in previous episodes when talking about the riots in Philadelphia in 1844 and the riots in Louisville in 1855. In the case of St. Leo Abbey, the theory went, and this is bonkers, that the monks were storing weapons to aid blacks in an armed revolt in support of Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany. Mind you, this was right squarely in the middle of World War I. Then, when the revolt was successful, Pope Benedict XV, with the Kaiser's aid, would move the Vatican to Pasco County, Florida, and after that, the Pope would close all the Protestant churches in the state. Yeah. So how blacks in the state were supposed to be in cahoots with the German Kaiser wasn't exactly clear. Nor was how the Kaiser would help the Pope to relocate to Florida. Since the Kaiser wasn't Catholic and Pope Benedict XV was Italian, not German. Yeah, Pope Benedict XV's name at birth was Giacomo della Chiesa. If he were German, that would have been more like Jakob der Kirche. But anyhow, never let an absence of facts or sense get in the way of a good conspiracy theory. (laughs) Right, especially not one that helps you politically. Oh, of course. And it did help him politically, even if he had to backtrack a bit. Yes, plenty of Protestant leaders knew that the theory was hogwash. The abbot of St. Leo penned a number of compelling replies to the charges. Protestant leaders made a point to denounce the theory and to be seen in public with prominent Catholics. Katz, once governor, was forced to ratchet down the rhetoric— But he didn't stop relying on anti-Catholicism to win support. In fact, in 1917, he worked to pass a law mandating state inspections of Catholic convents. Once again, Bishop Curley opposed this law, stating point blank that he and his congregations would not comply. That one died in legislature. Also, during Bishop Curley's tenure in St. Augustine, the Ku Klux Klan reemerged and became a powerful force in Florida. Bishop Curley worked tirelessly to educate Floridians on the evils of that organization. Curley would remain Bishop of St. Augustine until 1921 when he was named Archbishop of Baltimore. Florida's public schools would remain segregated until 1968. That same year, due to a number of factors, including the desegregation of the public schools, St. Benedict the Moore School closed. But the work of the Sisters of St. Joseph has spread far and wide. They are still at it. Nowadays, the United States is blanketed with communities of the Sisters of St. Joseph. They still engage in education, but they also now operate hospitals and homes for the elderly and infirm. They count more than 4,000 sisters in 16 congregations from coast to coast. But that period, in April and May of 1916, may well be one of the most dramatic episodes in the history of the Sisters of St. Joseph in the United States. The state said, stop educating black children. The sisters, with the support of their bishop, refused to comply, so the state arrested them. Eventually, justice won. 
the good work of good Catholic education continued, and the segregationist mindset lost a little more power. This has been American Catholic History. If you enjoy American Catholic History, please become a supporter. We've got great perks for supporters. Get information on how to become a supporter and all of our perks at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash support. Also on our website, sign up for our newsletter. Learn more about the Sisters of St. Joseph, Archbishop Michael Curley, and or the history of desegregation in Florida. Plus, see about our upcoming pilgrimages like our pilgrimage in August to the Kentucky Holy Land and Bourbon Country. Still have some space and the deadline to sign up is approaching. June 11th. June 11th, and find out about other great stories from American Catholic history. We also love the great reviews our listeners leave. Those and the five-star ratings help others find us. You can email us feedback, questions, tips for episodes, topics, or other comments out of feedback at AmericanCatholicHistory.org. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, and follow us on Twitter at ACH1513. I'm Noelle Heastercrow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, made possible by listeners like you. Thank you.